I like it that you clap for me before I speak. That's a safe thing to do. Thank you very much. A few other random details. I find it helpful um, uh, to get to know people just a little bit. So a few other random details if you care about me before I jump into our message. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Psalm 23. If you want to follow along, you can do that. If you have it memorized, I'm really impressed, so that's awesome. I have, uh, I've been married to my wife for 31 years. She couldn't um, travel out today uh, just because of schedule and then uh, COVID and holidays coming up. It just didn't work out, so she would have loved to be here. Last time we uh, were at a church, we were able to do it together. So uh, I've been married to my wife, Becky, for about 31 years. I have three kids. My oldest daughter is married and expecting her first, my first grandchild in April. So we're pretty excited about becoming a grandfather and a grandmother. Um, so that'll be pretty cool. I'm totally fine with being a granddad. I, it doesn't bother me in the least. I have another married son who lives in Fort Wayne as well. So does my daughter where I live. And then my youngest is a junior in college and um, goes to college up in Michigan. If you know anything about Michigan, you always locate things like this. He goes to college right there. So, which is about two hours from us. So we're thankful that we have all of our family. I've lived in Northeast Indiana almost all my life. One of the things I love about what I get to do working for a denomination is I do, uh, following up the introduction, is I get to spend time at, at churches. I get to work with pastors. I get to meet them. I get to spend time traveling a little bit, a little less so of recent because of the whole crazy COVID thing. Uh, but that too will pass eventually. Um, and I love that I get to spend time with churches and pastors and do what I do. Um, it's a real joy. Um, and so just in this world of small worlds, uh, your previous pastor, Mark Gegline, now lives in Fort Wayne within walking distance from my house. We live in the same addition, so we'll see each other sometimes in the evenings. The addition we live in doesn't have sidewalks. It has what we call trails. They're just sidewalks behind the house. It's a really unique addition, um, and they built it a long time ago. It has these trails, so my wife and I will take walks, and we'll walk, literally, we'll walk right behind his house sometimes. So um, we know Mark and have gotten to know him just a little bit. And then uh, youth pastor Brian and Dana have become friends of ours. And my wife and I, this is the last trip we did, we're able to be out in Monticello, Illinois, Monticello, however they say it, uh, for the first Sunday that Brian and Dana were there. So that's kind of a, a small world. So it's great to be here. I've been here twice, but never on a Sunday. So I've gotten to meet some of the pastors and some of the elders um, but never be here on a Sunday. So um, one of the things when people find out that I work for this denomination thing called FEC, um, people kind of ask me, what does it mean um, to be part of FEC? Or can you share a little bit about what it means? So before we jump into the message, let me just kind of share just a little bit about what it means to be this, this group, this thing called FEC. So FEC stands for the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches. It's a denomination that includes Harrisonville along with about 70 other or so um, churches around the nation and a whole lot more around the, the world. And as you probably know, if you don't, you're about to find out a little secret about denominations. If you don't know, probably you do that churches that belong to a denomination give a little percentage of their budget back to the denomination, which is what it means. It's how the things work. And one of the questions I get a lot is, well, what do we get for that money? Like, what does that get us? And my somewhat tongue-in-cheek answer is to say, well, nothing. Uh, you don't really receive anything except this, that you get to be a part of something bigger than yourself. You get to be a part of what God is doing across the nation and around the world. You get to be a part of something bigger than yourselves. 
One of my favorite philosophers and men's basketball coach, Mike Krzyzewski, head coach at Duke, for those of you who don't do NCAA basketball, he has, he's quoted as saying this, people want to be on a team. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves. They want to be in a situation that where they feel they are doing something for the greater good. I think that's what it means to be part of FEC. When I started on staff at FEC, I made it uh, my point, this was about three years ago, to try to travel around and meet as many of the leaders of FEC churches as I could. So I traveled around, had a lot of meals, drank a lot of coffee, did a lot of traveling. And on one of those visits, I went to a tiny little city about 45 minutes south of Fort Wayne, Indiana, where I live. It's a town of Burn, population of a few thousand people, maybe soaking wet. Um, Burn Evangelical Church isn't even in the city. It's about three miles outside the city. You gotta really want it if you get there. You gotta wanna be there. It's one of the original FEC churches founded about 150 years ago. Burn Evangelical Church has a graveyard connected to it. In the middle of that graveyard is a grave to a man named Henry Egley. Now, if you're not a church history nerd, which I'm assuming nobody here is except for me, the name Henry Egley probably doesn't mean much to you. But for those of us that are kind of into church history and follow that, we know that Henry Egley started a movement that today is called the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches. And on any given Sunday, and I imagine Henry Egley would hate it said this way, but on any given Sunday, there's literally tens of thousands of people attending church including here at Harrisonville, because of the movement that Henry Egley started over 150 years ago. And I tell people, that's what it means to be a part of FEC. So just to kind of wrap up this part before we move on to Psalm 23, this, this bigger than you part, let me tell you about some of the ministries that are going on. The mission of FEC is really simple, to establish reproducing churches worldwide. It's what we're trying to do is help establish reproducing churches and grow the kingdom. And to that end, right now, there are eight active church plants here in the States, one in Adrian, Michigan, one in Minunk, Illinois, Wooster, Ohio, Quad Cities, Iowa, another one in Waterville, Ohio, Fishers, Indiana, down by Indianapolis, which, by the way, does their services in Arabic and is reaching this, this, this Arabic population in Fishers, one in Lyons, Kansas, and one on the south side of Fort Wayne, Indiana, where I live, Harrisonville, you guys, by being a part of FEC, is helping to spread the kingdom in those cities. You're helping to establish gospel-centered churches in those towns. And it's not just in the states. In addition to mission work that Harrisonville might support individually, because you're a part of FEC, you're working to establish churches in the Basque region of northern Spain, where we have four couples living with a group called Zek Ministries in southern India where they've trained over 75 pastors with 20 active locations to start a new church and a vision to literally start hundreds more. You're helping to support a team in southern Africa, plant new churches. The first church in that area held its first service on August 18th, had over 100 people attend, and 80 people gave their lives to Christ for the first time. When people ask me, what does it mean to be a part of FEC? I say, that's what it means. That Harrisonville is helping to make that happen in the states and around the world. That's what it means to be a part of FEC. To be a part of this movement started over 150 years ago and continues around the world today. And I'm excited that Harrisonville 
gets to be a part of that redemptive plan. And that's what it means to be FEC. And I get to share about that. So there you go. That's kind of what's going on with FEC if you want to know more or if you want to nerd out on church history. We can do that sometime. I can tell you about Bishop Henry Egley. If you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to Psalm 23. We're going to kind of switch gears, so bear with me. Psalm 23. I'm reading out of the NIV uh, version. As I was preparing for this talk, I was reminded of a similar talk a friend of mine gave. He lives a, leads a mission agency in Eastern Europe called Josiah Venture. And his name's Dave, and Dave was speaking to his missionaries, and I was listening about Psalm 23, and he told a story about when he was a young kid visiting his grandfather in Oregon, and I thought it'd be relevant. See, his grandfather, who lived in the middle of Oregon, had just become a sheep farmer. And his grandfather had about 120 acres. He shifted a bunch of them from raising crop to raising sheep. And my friend Dave was excited to see his grandfather as any little child would be. He ran up to him and said, Grandpa, you're a shepherd. Of course, his grandfather corrected him and said, No, son, I'm a sheep farmer. And of course, the grandson Dave had no clue what he was talking about and asked, What's the difference? And his grandpa, in the way only grandpas can do, said, You'll understand in a second. So they walked out to go look at the sheep and they walked down the path and got to the field. And of course, the sheep did what sheep do. They ran to the other side of the field and Dave was surprised and said, Dave, Dad, Grandpa, what's up? And his grandfather said, call the sheep. And Dave, a little kid, had no clue how to do it, but he yelled, sheepy, sheepy. And of course, nothing happened. So Dave looked at the grandfather, you call the sheep. And his grandfather did. And of course, nothing happens. And his Grandson looked at his grandfather and said, I thought you were a shepherd. And he said, no, son, I'm a sheep farmer, not a shepherd. And then his grandfather goes on to explain, you need to know sheep don't naturally trust a shepherd. They only trust other sheep. The amount of time I would have to take to win their trust wouldn't allow me to run this farm. That's why I'm a sheep farmer, not a shepherd. And the grandson said, but you give them water. And the grandpa said, but the sheep think they found the water. But you give them hay. But the sheep think they found their own hay. But you build fences and protect them. But the sheep think they're protected by being with other sheep. That's why I'm a sheep farmer, not a shepherd. As we read Psalm 23, I want to say there's a lot of sheep listening here today, here online, watching it listening to this talk, and as sheep, it's not natural for us to trust our shepherd either. We want to treat God more as a sheep farmer, someone who takes care of our needs, but somebody we don't really trust, rather than as a shepherd, someone who we deeply trust and follow. So my prayer is that as we close out the message in a bit later, that we would understand what does it mean to have a shepherd and what does it mean to trust our shepherd deeply? Let me read through Psalm 23. There's only six verses. We'll read through the whole thing. You can follow along if you want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my 
soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm going to break up Psalm 23 into verses kind of 1, 2, and 3, and then verses 4, 5, and 6. And as we read through the first three verses, we kind of see two things. One, we see that there's a choice we have to make, a choice to be made, and then secondly, three results from this choice. You with me? A choice to be made, and then three results from this thing. So let's get started. As we look at verse one, we presented with a choice right away. David, the author of this psalm, starts out by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. Now the psalms are filled with something I like to call self-talk. It's like the psalmist is talking to himself, talking to his soul. We see it the most obvious when we read the psalms and we see, praise the Lord, O my soul. It's like the writer is talking to his soul. He's talking to himself. It's like he knows the condition of his soul. He knows the bent of his heart. He knows left to himself, his soul doesn't want to praise God. Left to himself, his soul and his heart's going to go this way. And so he talks to himself and reminds himself about the truth. We do it all the time when we sing too. Sometimes some of the songs we sing, some of the songs we sang this morning are me talking to myself, reminding myself of what I know to be true. Because left to myself, I tend to drift away, right? So at the beginning of Psalm chapter one, the psalmist David is talking to himself. He's telling himself that he's making this choice that the Lord is my shepherd. He's reminding himself of this truth. So as I thought about that, I thought, well, if he has to remind himself of that, what are some of the other possible choices that you and I might have? If I have to remind myself that the Lord is my shepherd, what are some of the other possible choices? I wrote down four here. I wrote option number one is that maybe we have no shepherd. You're in this on your own in the middle of a crazy year, COVID, elections and stuff and new, everything that's going on, you have no shepherd. You're in this on your own. Option number two, very similar, is maybe we think we're our own shepherd. I make my way. My fortunes rise or fall with me and me alone. I put the water there. Remember the opening? I found those bales of hay. We're so into self-help. I can fix it. This is where I want to live so easily. If I just work a little harder, do a little more, I can fix it because I am my own shepherd. So our second option is we think we're our own shepherd. Option number three, maybe for some of us, is that there's a fallible fellow human is my shepherd. We're looking for someone else to be our shepherd. Maybe my husband, maybe my wife, maybe even my pastor. Maybe the government, 
or the news channel I listen to is my shepherd. Some of us are taking our cues, our shepherding from fallible fellow humans. Now, there's nothing wrong with listening to all those people, of course. The question is, who really is your shepherd? Or option number four, the one that the psalmist is reminding himself of, is that God is our shepherd. And before we go any further, before we kind of dive into the three outcomes and a few more things here as we move on, I want to ask you, who is your shepherd? Right now, at this moment, just kind of pause and ask yourself, who is my shepherd? Because all the verses that follow are contingent on how you answer that one question. Who is your shepherd? And maybe you need to tune out right now. You're done. And just answer that question. Maybe you're watching online and you just need to pause and answer, who is your shepherd? Who is your shepherd today? The rest of the psalm flows out of the answer to that very simple question. As we move past the first sentence in the psalm, first sentence, we're going to move a little faster, don't worry. We'll see that everything else flows from how we answer that one question. Who is your shepherd? So I think David, as he wrote this, he wrote down three outcomes of answering that the Lord is our shepherd. So let's just kind of look through them. Outcome number one is what I wrote down as a lack of want. Verse one, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want, or I lack nothing. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard wrote a book on Psalm 23 called Life Without Lack. And he says in the opening of his book that this statement is surely one of the most audacious assertions in the English language. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I mean, when you and I read that, tempted, that sentence, at least I am, I don't know about you, I'm tempted to say, are you kidding me? I mean, do you live in the world I live in? I lack nothing, I shall not be in want. I mean, I, I wanna grab David and say, are you familiar with 2020? I mean, really? Are you just my neighbors, the struggles, my life, the things we've been through, the pain, the reality of everyday life? Are you, I lack nothing. Do you really live in the real world, David? And the answer, of course, is most assuredly yes. David, the author, really does live in the real world. Let me just give you a quick bullet point. Quick bullet point of some of the highlights or maybe lowlights of David's life before you write them off. David, before he became king, served King Saul, who became so jealous of him that he tried to kill him, threw a spear at him repeatedly. David had to flee his country and live in hiding away from his own people. After David became king, of course, you know the story. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered. David's son Ammon committed rape and incest. Ammon was then murdered by one of David's other sons, Absalom. That same son, Absalom, led a rebellion against his father, David, and forced David, again, to flee from Jerusalem for his life. And at the end of his life, as if all that wasn't enough, David ignored wise counsel and took a census of his people, leading to a deadly plague that killed countless people in his country. 
That's David. That's David. That's the guy who says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. It's the guy who very surely lived in the real world. It's this real life of David and you and I that makes the opening statement all the more audacious as Dallas Willard sounds. It sounds almost crazy. But the more you know about David's life, the more you realize he was living something true. So let me just ask you a question this morning. Is there something you lack this morning? Is there something you want? In the midst of a crazy election, coronavirus, news of just all kinds of stuff, is there something you lack? I wrote this message back in March when the first coronavirus lockdown hit. And I said, there's all kinds of things I want, you know? And I just have a list here. My daughter taught fifth grade and had to, you know, quit teaching before she could say goodbye to her kids. We had to move my son's wedding because of coronavirus. My son had to come home early from college. My son lost his summer internship because the place wasn't making money and they couldn't do what they were. There's a lot I want when I think about it. And today's no different. I mean, we could just go through here, you know. There's a lot of lack and want. But in the midst of this, in the midst of all this stuff that I was hoping for, that I wanted, we just canceled our family Christmas um, where we normally meet at our house and have 40, 50 people at our house. And of course, we can't do that. It wouldn't be safe. There's a lot that I lack or want right now. And it's hard. In the midst of that, the Bible says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I shall not be in want. The modern NIV says, I lack nothing. David is reminding himself that in the midst of a crazy world that he lived in, in the midst of 2020, his shepherd is taking care of him. And your shepherd is taking care of you too. Your needs serve as a window into the shepherd's work in your life. Your needs and your wants should point you back to a God who is actively working right now. I think it was an Easter my wife was sharing. And she shared out of Daniel chapter 3, verse 18. You all know the story. It's the fiery furnace and Shadrach, Meshach, and the Sunday school story that we all know. And they're getting ready to be thrown in the furnace. And they say, King, we will not bow down and serve your God. Because we know our God can save us. And then something crazy happens. They say the next phrase, but even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, even if the pandemic doesn't get better, even if, I have two kids who are teaching at school, even if they don't get to teach like they want again, even if I don't get what I want, my shepherd is actively working even if he doesn't. So let me just ask you again, where do you lack? What do you want? The Lord is our shepherd. I lack nothing. Outcome number two, just to keep moving. Outcome number two is rest. Psalm 23, two. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. The second outcome of understanding the Lord is my shepherd is that he provides rest for me. As we look at this outcome, let me just ask you, this is what I'm gonna do on every point. Are you regularly experiencing the shepherd's rest and restoration in your life? I mean, if you're being honest right now, and remember, it's not wrong to be tired. It's not wrong to be busy or have tires of those. Jesus got hungry. Look at Matthew 4. He got tired. Look at Matthew 8. He even said, I am weary. Look at John chapter 4. Jesus had busy days, and they made him tired and weary and hungry. That's not the problem. One of my other artists or writers I write about is a guy named Cal Newport. This would be a good engineering one. Cal is a professor of computers at MIT or something like that. I mean, he's just a nerd on exponential scale. He wrote a book that was powerful for me called Digital Minimalism. Digital Minimalism. And Cal, in that book, in describing our culture, he writes about the world we live in. He writes this, quote, we live in a techno-exhausted, always-on, digitally caffeinated culture. Man, let me just read that again. A techno-exhausted, always-on, digitally caffeinated culture. And I wonder if that describes any of us right now. We're tired. We're exhausted. We're always-on. We're digitally caffeinated or techno-exhausted. It's not that you're busy. It's something different. It's almost that your soul is tired or empty. It's the sense that you have to caffeinate your soul just to get through the day, just to care about something. If that describes you, then may I suggest the problem isn't so much your schedule as it is your shepherd. Because Psalm 23 says your shepherd makes you lie down in green pastures. He leads you beside quiet pastures. He makes and leads because I won't do it on my own. So before I go to outcome number three, let me ask you, are you experiencing rest right now? And if not, if you're saying I'm feeling a little bit digitally caffeinated, my soul is a little dry, let me just ask you, who is your shepherd? Outcome number three is restoration. Verse three opens up with, he restores my soul. All of the Psalms, if you don't know this, are poetry. They're Hebrew, ancient Hebrew poems. And all poems have structure to them. If you were to write a poem today, you would use a structure called rhyming. It's what we do today when we write poetry. Hebrews use a structure called parallelism, where they would repeat themselves over and over. Okay? And the people who study this have like, Names they'll give them. They'll say that's an A-B-B-A parallel or A-B-A-B or things like that. That's how they organize that. And I think this parallel structure is kind of what we see in these two verses, these three stanzas of, of poetry repeating or being in parallel, building to this crescendo. It works like this. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside, building to this crescendo, this kind of final statement of he restores my soul, period. 
He makes you lie down. He leads you beside, comma, so that he restores your soul. And I'm wondering, because I don't know all of you that well, if anyone listening this morning needs your soul restored. Your souls become tired, empty, hurt, broken, angry. Maybe it's the choices you've made this morning. Maybe it's choices somebody in your life has made. But for whatever reason, your soul, your heart needs restored this morning. You see, a sick sheep will do its best to look strong and healthy. Sheep don't like to show pain because it makes them more vulnerable to predators who look for the weak and the injured. They do everything they can to look fine. Man, how true of that is me. I don't like to admit that I need restored somewhere. So as we finish the first three kind of verses, let me just finish before we move into verse four. Who is your shepherd right now, this morning? Who is your shepherd? And then follow that up with how is your level of want, your sense of rest, and how is your soul right now? If the Lord is our shepherd, and he is, then the second couple, second part of Psalm 23, the four, verses four, five, and six, focus on how he shepherds me. In the next three verses, we see four quick promises that I'm gonna run through here. Four promises of how God's gonna shepherd you. So we'll go through those. Follow along if you're writing down, this will keep you awake. So here we go. Promise number one, God promises his presence with us. Look at verse four. Look at verse four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. I don't fear because you are with me. God promises his presence. When you read the words valley of the shadow of death, it's easy to think about literal death. We use this. I've been a pastor. I use this in funerals, and that's fine. But when I'm facing death, the words, these words shadow of death are really just one word in Hebrew. They come from one Hebrew word. The Hebrew word shows up 18 times in the Bible, obviously once right here. Ten times the same word shows up in the book of Job. Job is filled with this. And just in case you don't know the story of Job, Job faces the death of his family, the scorn of his friends, financial ruin, marriage failure. That's what Job is facing. So when you think of valley of the shadow of death, that death shadow, it's talking about that. These are all the shadow of death, the deep darkness that threatens to swallow us up. So let me just ask you, what's your death shadow today? Where are the dark areas that create fear in your life? Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's a relationship, a marriage that's teetering on the brink. Maybe it's a secret you've kept hidden and you're terrified it just might come out. In the midst of a world dominated by fear, David cries out, the Lord is my shepherd. I won't be afraid for you are with me. The word afraid appears 44 times in the Gospels. 44 times. 
Jesus is constantly telling his disciples, don't be afraid, I am here. So what are your death shadows? Where are you facing the unknown in your life? And you need to be reminded that God is with you. Promise number two is protection. Look back at verse four with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In addition to his presence, to being with us in the midst of our death shadows, God promises his protection. And you've probably heard this from other people, so real quick, rod and staff give two examples of how God protects us. The staff, think of that crook, you know, where a shepherd could pull something in or pull somebody off stage. The staff is used to protect us from ourselves, where God's pulling us back in, where we are standing at the edge, about to step off into the cliff. We're thinking this decision we're about to make is okay. It's not a problem, no one will know. I'm all by myself. I can take this step. We're standing at the edge and God says, I have my staff trying to pull you back. We do what sheep do. We ignore danger signs. We keep going and God uses his staff to protect us from ourselves. So where is God trying to get your attention today? Maybe you're facing a decision and he's trying to protect you. His staff. And then the rod is that that hitting and protecting ourselves from other people. Sometimes the dangers, problems, and pressures we face aren't our own. They come from outside. Things we can't even see. Things we can't possibly predict, like a virus. No one really sees these things coming. No one could predict it, and it's destroying things. Our jobs, relationships, mental health, future. God says, I want to protect you from this In the midst of struggles, our shepherd says, don't be afraid, I am with you, and I am protecting you. So before I go to promise number three, let me ask, is God trying to protect you from yourself this morning? Is there a decision that you're thinking about making? You know it's over the edge. And God's saying, come back. Or maybe you need to be reminded of God's presence his protection from outside stuff. Promise number three, I wrote down as provision. So God, our shepherd, promises his presence, his protection, and then his provision for us. Verse five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This is another kind of parallel structure, a repetition going on that's building to a crescendo. You prepare a table before me. Then David kind of builds on that phrase and says, you anoint my head with oil. And then he builds to the final statement of his crescendo, says, my cup overflows, period. God says, my cup overflows. It isn't just that God says your cup is full, Provision of God goes beyond this to my cup overflows. And as I read that, 
I asked two questions, and we're not going to get into them this morning for time, but I find it really intriguing. Why does God do this in the presence of my enemies? And why does he make my cup overflow? Like, wouldn't it be enough just to fill my cup to the top? Why does my cup overflow? And why in front of my enemies? I think the only possible answer is that God's provision to me isn't meant to stop with me. God designed his provision to be overflowing to people around me, even to my enemies, the people I disagree with, the people I don't like, the people that don't think like me, the people that don't believe like me, maybe the people that don't worship like me. God says, my provision is designed to overflow and be given away. So before I go to the final point, who are your enemies? Maybe enemies is a tough word, but where is God calling your cup to overflow to others? Promise number four, the last one, I wrote down as pursuit. Skip down to verse six. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, I think this promise, this stanza here at the end of the psalm is the apex, the crescendo of the entire thing. Everything has been building to this point. This word, surely goodness and love will pursue, this pursuit, follow me. This word follow is translated in different versions of the Bible. The New Living Translation has the word pursue. The message by Eugene Peterson has the word chase. I love the picture. Surely your love and goodness will chase me, pursue me, follow me, hunt me down all the days of my life. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've gone through, Psalm 23 says God's love and goodness is pursuing you, chasing you down, following you, You can't get away from it. Real quick, two thoughts before I finish on this point. Verse six opens up with the word surely. Again, it's that self-talk. David reminding himself that on days when he doesn't think so, when days when it doesn't feel that way, I need to remember that surely God's love and goodness is with me, is chasing me today. So maybe you're not sure about God's love and goodness chasing after you. Maybe you want to say, Eric, you don't know my life. You don't know what I've been through. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of love and goodness right now. And I just say, surely God is chasing you down. Second point is the question I wrote down, how long? All the days of my life. This is how long goodness and love pursues me all the days of my life until it finally brings me into the presence of my shepherd. So this is how God shepherds us. Four quick promises. His presence, even in the midst of death, shadows, and darkness. Maybe you need that this morning. His protection from my choices and others. His provision so I can be generous 
my cup overflows, and his pursuit. He is chasing me down with love and goodness all the days of my life. Let me pray, and we'll close out. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful uh, for you this morning. God, I'm grateful for the days even when I don't feel uh, a lot of goodness and love. But God, I'm thankful that I know your love, your goodness is chasing me down, pursuing me all the days of my life. God, I'm grateful that I have a shepherd that I can trust with everything. Help all of us here listening today fall deeper in love with a shepherd who um, goes beyond anything we could ever understand. God, thank you for Harrisonville. Thank you for this church, for the witness and faithfulness they have been. Thank you for the friendships that I've been able to build and the people we've been able to get to know. And uh, God, would you just continue to bless this church and make your face to shine upon them. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.